the New Life Community Church. Come on, it's all right. You can get excited about it. That's okay. It's good to be with you here this morning. Uh, my name's Andrew, and I'm delighted to be able to share the Word of God with you. Uh, we're continuing on our series called First Things First, going through the book of Colossians, and this has been a powerful series. I'm always encouraged to go through the book of Colossians, this letter that Paul has written to a church that he's never been to, and he's encouraging them to continue to follow Jesus. Now, Paul had the opportunity to plant a lot of churches, but as he's speaking to this one, it's interesting to me that even at a church he didn't plant, it's really coming across a lot more encouragingly than it is some of his other letters. If you read the language of 1 Corinthians, you get a little bit of a harsher tone to it, like, hey, man, you guys got to knock this stuff off. You guys are doing communion when not everybody's there. Stop it. It's not so you can get drunk, right? People were doing that with communion. They were getting loaded on communion. That's crazy. He said, stop doing that. And it was like, yeah, you should stop doing that. In Galatians, they were so caught up on what it was to be a Jew that he was like, listen, man, your identity doesn't come any longer from your bloodline. It comes from your salvation in Jesus And so his language is pretty tough with them, like knock it off, quit doing what you're doing and focus on these things instead. And in the book of Colossians, it's way less like that. It's it's not as much um, kind of coming in and saying you need to stop. It's not as much critique. It's not as much kind of this hard language. Instead, what he's doing is he's saying, I've heard of you. I've heard of your love. I've heard of the way you're following Jesus. Keep it up, man. Don't give up. Keep fighting. And so all of this, he's kind of encouraging them. What does it look like to find your identity in Jesus and to continue on to make it to the end in him? That's really the focus here. And so as we come into Colossians chapter three, which we started last week, um, it starts with these first four, the first four verses, which are set your minds on things above. Right. Keep your mind on Christ. It's this change of perspective. And then last week, it was really about putting these things to death. He said, I want you to kill these things in your life, the things that belong to your old nature, your old way. You used to have this kind of sin stuff that you did in this way that you behaved and these desires that drove you. And I want you to put them to death. And this week, he's got a different sort of a focus. This week is about putting something on. So last week was taking off the old man. This week is putting on the new. And it's really an encouragement to the church of if you're going to live and follow Jesus, then you're going to need to know what it is to be unified, to experience unity. And can I tell you, unity in the church is a challenging thing. It's not easy, right? And the reason it's not easy is because not all of us really know each other super well. Go ahead, look at your neighbor. Just look at him. How well do I know you? Some of you are looking right at your spouse and you're still asking the question, honestly, how well do I know you? So some of it's that some of it's the fact that there are people who have frustrated you. There are some of you who are left siders because there's someone on the right side. You just don't want to sit next to anymore. Okay, like it sounds petty, but like unity is hard. One day someone came over and they said, greet your neighbor. And they shook everybody's hand in the row except for yours. And you were like dead to me. Done. Don't want it anymore. Hey, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to do that to you. Unity is hard. It's a challenge. And the reality is, is that we are going to offend each other. Some of you guys have been offended before, right? Like some of you are like, oh, I don't offend that easy. I've got thick skin. Listen, how'd you get that thick skin? 
by getting offended over and over and over again. Listen, even when you try to help people and love people, you can get offended. I remember one time somebody had asked me to call up a friend of theirs, and they said, hey, this guy's really struggling. Is there any way that the church can help him? My entire point of engaging with this person was to show them the love of Jesus Christ from our church, to rally around them during this really hard time that they'd gone through. They lost someone in their family. They were in trouble with their finances, and we were going to help them. And this guy is talking to me, and you can tell he's hesitant about the church. He's reluctant to talk to the pastor. And so we're talking for a little while, and he just kind of gets cynical on me, and he says, what's your angle here? And I'm like, well, I don't, I don't have an angle. I assume your friend had talked to you because they gave me your number. <laughs> and they, you know, I'm just trying to see if I could help. He's like, well, what's your thing? What's your thing? What, did you cheat on your wife? And I was like, I'm sorry. And he's like, what are you, you an alcoholic? Do you used to be an alcoholic? Are you on drugs? What's your thing? And I'm like, I'm sorry, man. I don't know what your deal is, but, you know, I'm done. And I hung up the phone on this guy because, like, he just kept coming at me, and I got offended. And I was like, you know what? I'm trying to help you, and you're throwing this stuff out at me. And you know what he was thinking is this dude had spent a couple of years in his life in the Catholic Church, and literally everything that he knew about Protestant Christianity was a bunch of guys who had crazy testimonies about how they used to cheat on their wife, about how they used to be on drugs and alcohol, and Jesus saved their soul. And later on, I was thinking, I was like, he was probably trying to ask in his own little way, what's your testimony? (laughs) That's probably what he's trying to do, right? But he's like, what, did you cheat on your wife? I'm like, whoa, buddy, I don't know you like that. And the reality is there are going to be people who offend you. There are going to be people who bother you, who hurt you, who wound you. Some of it will be on purpose. Others will be on accident. Some of them, you know, they just do it because it's their nature. Others will even try to do it in a polite way. How many of you have ever heard this? I don't mean to be rude, but you ever heard that before? What is necessarily coming after that statement? Absolutely. Absolutely. So I'm trying to be polite about it. And I say, well, I don't mean to be rude, but... That haircut is terrible on you. I don't mean to be rude, but that sweater, yeah, that's just not working. I don't mean to be rude, but your teeth, your breath smells so bad that your teeth are looking to leave. It's a bad situation. I don't mean to be rude, but... And then we have a license to say whatever rude thing is in our mind. And there are variations. I don't mean to intrude. I don't mean to get in your space. But if I were the parent of your kids, I would keep a closer eye on them. And then you start like... You start stepping up, somebody comes after you about your kids, right? If you're wearing earrings, you start taking them off, right? It's that kind of situation. If you're a guy, you start rolling up your sleeves. You're like, go ahead, tell me how to parent one more time, I dare you. I don't mean to intrude. I told you I didn't mean to intrude. I don't mean to be offensive, but... And then you fill in the blank. Man, we know how to offend each other. It's interesting, as I was looking this up, I was looking for examples of I don't mean to be rude, but... And it's actually in the Urban Dictionary. That this language is in the Urban Dictionary. If you're not familiar with it, it helps you understand slang. And this has gotten so much notoriety that it's a slang terminology. And this is the definition from the Urban Dictionary. I'm about to be rude, but I don't care, so brace yourself. That's what it means. I don't mean to be rude, but it means I'm about to be rude. I don't care. Brace yourself. I want you to understand that you're going to be offended. And as we look at Colossians chapter 3 today, it's in the lens of unity. And it seems to be with the backdrop of understanding that you are going to get offended in this world. And so you need to pursue unity 
even in the midst of offense. The title of this message just briefly is, so you're going to be offended. (laughs) This is it. How do we follow Jesus in a place that lets us down, in a place that hurts us? And so if you would turn with me to Colossians chapter 3, we're going to take a look at what Paul has to say, ultimately what God is speaking to the church in Colossae. And I want you to hear this. I want you to, to know what he's saying. In the midst of all of this, when you take off the old self and you put on something new, what does that look like? What does that pursuit after unity look like? And in verse 12, chapter 3, verse 12, he says it this way. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, put on compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And so this thing of being in perfect harmony, this thing of experiencing love, it's bound up in this stuff. And he starts off, he says, your beloved children, you're chosen, you're wanted. God loves you. He cares about you. You belong to him. And now I want you to put something on. This language of putting something on, it's clothing terminology. We find it in verse 10 as well. He says, you put on the new life. Now I want you to put on these attributes of Jesus. And I want you to get this picture, right? Because there are some things that when we put them on, they change our identity. You may see a police officer walking around in his civilian clothes and never know he's a police officer. But when he puts on the uniform, you recognize his authority, right? To a football player, you may wonder when he's got his pads on, right, which team he plays for. But when he puts on the jersey, you know Is that guy on my team or not? And there are certain things that identify you, who you are in your identity, on the basis of what you put on. To give it to you simply, uh, I was on vacation about two years ago with my family. While we were on vacation, uh, we had our bags and everything, and, and my son had gotten into my bag and he put a bunch of stuff on. He put on my hoodie and and it fit him surprisingly well, embarrassingly well at six years old. And he put on a pair of my shorts that fit him like a pair of pants. And we've got that picture there. That's him wearing my clothes. And it was so funny because he put it on and we hear him snickering. And then he runs out into the main hall with us and he's just laughing his head off. And I'm like, Micah, what are you doing? And he says, Dad, I'm you. (laughs) Just like that. And I looked at him. I was like, yeah, yeah, you're me. He's like, no, but really. I'm you. (laughs) And he started doing like dabbing and dancing. I don't know. I guess he'd seen me do that before. Um, So he says, Dad, I'm you. And this is the same kind of thing that Jesus is telling us to do. He says, listen, if your identity is wrapped up in this and you have to put on some different kinds of things. And so first point is this. How do we deal with this offended world? How do we deal with the place where we've been hurt, where we've been wronged? How do we pursue unity in the midst of pain? Well, the first thing is we need to dress like Jesus. If you belong to God, you should clothe yourself in his character. And I want you to pay attention to this because the reason I focused on conflict here and being offended is that the list that he provides, he doesn't say things like, hey, you used to steal, you should stop. You used to be violent, don't be violent anymore. You used to be angry, you should be less angry. Actually, the entire list that he's giving us here in the pros column, in the positive column, verses 12 through 17, seem to be about how to emulate Christ in the midst of crisis. Listen to it. Watch. I want you to have compassionate hearts. 
Compassion literally means to suffer with someone else. So when you see them going through hardship, I don't want you to say, oh, I'm busy. I've got my things. I want you to see what they're going through, and I want you to be compelled to move towards them. Kindness. There's this thing in the heart of Jesus that he says, I want you to be kind. I want you to treat people better than what they deserve. I want you to do it because of what you have known in Jesus. Kindness isn't a reaction. It's a proactive movement intentionally in mission with Jesus. Humility. I want you to put yourself second. I want you to understand who you are well enough to not have to boast it around and ask, hey, will you give me things and do things for me? But rather in humility, I want you to come alongside of others, to have meekness. This word literally means to have power in control. It's the exact sign. It's the exact kind of restraint that any adult does when a little kid comes along and punches them, right? Like if you've ever had like a really kind of a punk five-year-old come up to you and be like, what do you got? And like punch you or hit you or push you or try to play with you or they act like, am I the only one? Is it just me? You get some kid and they're like, I'm going to take you down. You can't like choke slam them to the ground. You can't do that. That's wrong. And so they're acting like, oh, I got you. And maybe they'll arm wrestle you or grab your leg. And what do you always do, right? You fake it. You're like, oh, you're so strong, right? You don't just go, wham, bring it on. Get your brother. I'm going through your whole family. You don't do that. You practice restraint. And if they come at you and they hit you, and even if it hurts, because sometimes like my son, he would wrestle with me and he only sort of understood what wrestling was. And so one of them would like grab my hands and then Micah would jump like off a couch, knees first towards my face. And usually I could get my hands up in time to not die. Every once in a while, it would really hurt, but I can't go, oh, that hurts so bad. Boom. Like you can't do that. Meekness is saying I have power. I have authority. I have the ability to do you harm, but I'm not exercising my power in order to do you harm. It's the idea, even if someone broke into your home and the police were called and they came and they asked you the question, do you want to press charges? Okay. It's saying we recognize your power. We recognize your authority. Now you have the decision. Do you want to exercise it or not? And meekness can say, you know what? I don't need to do that. Meekness can be redemptive. Meekness can look like weakness, but it is not. It is not an absence of power. Instead, it is controlling your power for the good of others. And finally, patience. Patience. I don't know if you ever knew somebody that told you that they were praying for patience or that you should pray for patience. It's kind of a joke, right? Because in order to gain patience, you have to be put in situations where you don't want to be patient. That's how growth works. And so all these things he's talking about, compassion, means you're going to be around people that you need to be compassionate towards. And I don't know about you, but I'm busy enough, right? Like, that's why this is hard. I don't need one more person to try and help. Kindness means I have to be thoughtful of someone else, even if they don't deserve it. I don't want to be thoughtful of anyone. I'm selfish. That's what I do. Humility. You know what? I don't suffer from this problem where everybody praises me too much. As it turns out, I often feel like, man, I'm doing a lot. Did anybody notice? I mean, this is, this is, the, this is the thing of like living in a house with a bunch of kids, right? And my wife is infinitely better at taking care of the home than I am. And I get these moments, and thank God they don't happen often, but I get these moments where I'll do something 
I'll tidy up a bedroom. I'll do the dishes. I'll do this one thing, right? And I kind of look at her like, you know what I mean? And she can tell what I'm doing. And she's like, what do you want? Like, what? I don't know if you noticed, but the, uh, the dishes are done. <laughs> and she's like, I don't know if you noticed, but I did the dishes the last 150 times. You really want to have this conversation? You know, it's like, man, it's hard to be humble. It's hard to be meek. It's hard to keep things under control when you know you could exercise your power towards yourself. And instead to take this and say, I'm going to operate for your good, not for mine. This is what Jesus is like. This is literally what it means when Jesus goes to the cross. One of the places where this is questioned the most is Jesus goes to the cross missionally. To die on the cross for you and for me so that we can be saved, so that we can be forgiven. This is true for every single person who's ever had faith in Jesus. And I can't help but just shake my head at the words of a religious leader who comes up to Jesus and says, if you're so strong, why don't you take yourself off the cross? If you're so strong, Jesus... Why don't you get off of there? He saved other people. Let him save himself. In the words of Jesus in that place, with an army of angels at his disposal with the power of God at his fingertips is not to say, oh, really? He doesn't call down lightning and vaporize the dude. He doesn't pop off the cross and be like, I'm out. I'm done. Instead, he takes that moment to advocate on his behalf. And he says, Father, forgive him. He doesn't know what he's doing. This is meekness, power under control. Jesus knew what his purpose was, and he says, I'm utilizing this for mission. It was not weakness that drove him to the cross, but power brought under the authority of the mission and intentional will of God. And finally, in verse 13, bearing with one another, this literally means to endure someone. You ever had to endure someone? Isn't that rough? You ever been endured? (laughs) I have. So... (laughs) And it's a cute moment when you realize it. If you can catch it, it's a cute moment. Um, But like, I don't know. I've led enough things. I've been in charge of enough things that I kind of know where I can operate. And sometimes when I don't have to, I kind of just take a back seat. And I've, I've been in the room where other people were leading. And they don't necessarily know everything about me. But I can tend to have a little bit of a goofy sense of humor and be a little sarcastic. And once you've said the wrong pun too many times, right? And people just look at you and they're like, you are being endured, right? Like, usually they're nice about it, but you just realize, oh, yeah, yeah, I'm slowing things down. You go ahead, get back to the meeting, it's good. I was just a little joke, entertaining myself, it's fine. But it's hard sometimes to endure other people because when you're enduring someone, you feel naturally like they're a burden on you. It's like the kind of person that asked, hey, can I stay with you for a couple of days? And two weeks later, you're like, so, any luck finding your new place, right? It just, it feels like it's dragging. To endure someone is not an easy thing. And Jesus says, hey, listen, once you understand that you guys have responsibility to one another, that you're part of the family of God, you begin to endure things differently, right? Because there are some people that you wouldn't let into your home for weeks on end, but you would with your family. That's what he's saying. He says, I want you to endure like family. And he says, take this one step further, not just having patience and enduring one another, but if someone has a complaint against them, to forgive each other as the Lord has forgiven you. And this is so powerful. 
He reminds them, just like you've been forgiven, so you must forgive. Someone say must. Like, don't lose sight of the must here. Some of us are like, isn't forgiveness beautiful? Yeah, it is. You ever been forgiven of something? It's awesome. It's so incredible. I've done so many foolish things. And to have somebody be like, hey, I forgive you. You're just like, oh, thank you. Okay, with my parents, you know, I can think of so many different times where I have broken things, ruined things, lost things. And there was a monetary amount behind that. I remember I just learned how to drive. My mom and dad are here today, uh, so I'm really grateful to have them here. And uh, my mom was letting me drive. We had a van full of kids. Do you remember this? And I was being a little bit goofy behind the wheel. And uh, so we were in the church parking lot, and all I had to do was pull forward. And I thought I'd be cute. And I said, forward, ho, and I threw it into reverse like it was an accident. And all the kids were like, whoa, what's he doing? And I was like, well, I plan to go in reverse. What I didn't plan for is that there was a car kind of parked at an angle. And the back bumper of the car scraped right alongside the van. And I felt this big. Do you remember that? Yeah, she remembers that. (laughs) And I remember feeling like I'm an idiot. But mom, I'm not as big of an idiot as you thought. I meant to go backwards. I just didn't see the other vehicle. And so we're dealing with this whole thing. And she never once said, hey, guess what? You're paying for all the damages, right? She didn't do that. And I feel like an idiot. I'm like, mom, I'll do whatever you want. I'll give you any money. Like, I don't have money. But what I do have, you can have. Like, And she just said, Andrew, it's okay. I, for- I forgive you. And man, it's just that washes over you. And you're like, man. And she might still be like, yeah, I'm still waiting. Uh, You know, you were 16 then. You have more money now. It was about $1,600. Any time would be great. But when you're forgiven, there is this liberating thing. And what he's saying is you have experienced forgiveness from Jesus. It has transformed you and renewed you and redeemed you. It has taken you from that which was dead to that which was alive. It has said, I count your sins against you no longer. And all the things that would disqualify you from relationship with God are gone. The debt, it's paid. And he says, if you have known that, if you have experienced the goodness of the wealth of his forgiveness towards you. I want you to give it away to someone else. And this is the important part about it. And why he says you must forgive. Because sometimes we don't want to. We want to be forgiven. But we don't want to forgive. And here's the thing. Is that we ask the question in our minds. We say I know I should forgive them. But there's this thing that stands in the way. And it's simply this. Do they deserve it? Are they sorry enough? Did they try to make it better? Did they apologize? For some of you, did they apologize the right way? Have they gone through the right hoops? Have they done what it takes to reconcile? If they're not willing to take the first step, I'm not just going to let them off the hook. Think about what Jesus did for you. You see, the power of forgiveness is not in saying, do they deserve it? I'll give it to you. It's in recognizing they don't deserve it. Perhaps I can never deserve it, but I'll give it anyway. And the beauty of this kind of forgiveness is it allows for a relationship to take place where it couldn't. It allows for a a closeness and an intimacy that was separated before by the distance of your pain. And here's the problem. If you have been wronged, and many of you have been, if you have been hurt, and many of you have been, some of you in deep ways, incredible ways, you might think to yourself to forgive them, to let them off the hook. 
would be to say that what they did didn't matter. But that's not true. What forgiveness does is it says, this pain that I hold on to because of the wrong that you have done to me, I'm letting go of. Now, all of us have family troubles, and I'm sure I've done a lot of bad things to my brothers over the years. I remember when I was a kid and I glued my brother's arms together. That was bad. But there are some things, too, that my brothers have done to me, and I remember one particular thing that was pretty hard. I've been saving up coins my, my whole childhood, and he took those and... You know, he was struggling with drugs at the time, and, and this is just kind of part of what happens in, in the home. Is he went in, and he looked for money, and he found where I was hiding it, and he took those coins. And to the best of my knowledge, he took them, some of them rare coins, some of them old coins, and, and he took them, and he, he dumped it down one of those change collector thingies for the money so that he could do whatever. And I remember just being really wounded by that and really hurt because it felt like he took something in my childhood from me. And I remember finally confronting him about it years later and just being like, hey, man, this is kind of a significant issue, and I just want to clear the air. Like, I don't need you to pay me back. I don't need you to do anything, but I just wanted to talk about it because it kind of hurt me. And he's like, I didn't do that. It wasn't me. And I was just like, oh, really? And I'm really grateful because in the midst of all that, my parents actually, they, um, they set up a little bowl which made this easier and and they set aside money for like a year they would just put change in that maybe two years or three years and and then they gave it to me in this symbolic thing it was actually in a sock i still have that sock and it made it easier but i kind of saw what they were doing and i thought man here are my parents that don't owe me anything if anything i still owe them for the van and i am sorry um and they're showing me this kind of grace to say i'm going to redeem you with this kind of love and i thought man they've given this to me like can I give this away to him? And so I remember the time when I was like, you know what? I want to have a relationship with my brother. And if this is getting in the way, like something I'm frustrated about, like, what is it? A couple hundred dollars? Like, if this is getting in the way, can I just say, you know what? It doesn't even matter. I forgive you. I let it go. It's no longer in my heart. There's no burden. There's no bother. There's no thing in me that's going to get upset at you about this anymore. And let me tell you, I went from this situation where seeing my brother was a hardship and a list of all the things he'd done to letting it go and opening up the space for relationship. And as I began to forgive, like Jesus forgave me, what I noticed happening was amazing that my older brother, who spent the vast majority of his life trying not to be stuck with his younger brother hanging out with him. Now, every time that I come home for Christmas or Thanksgiving, he always makes sure to align his schedule with mine so that he can be at my parents' house, so that our kids can play together, so that we can see each other every single time. It used to be that I'd have to call him and practically beg him. That doesn't happen anymore. He wants that. And it's because this space was open for relationship and I was willing to let something go. And it didn't have to be acknowledged. And some of you, you want that moment. Acknowledge my pain. And what's going on here is he's saying, listen, you wronged Jesus greatly. He forgave you. Can you forgive what's been done against you in the power of Jesus? This is what we're being called to. Dress like Jesus. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. The second point is, is briefer. Don't worry, this isn't a three-hour sermon. Submit your heart to the rule of peace. When peace is absent from your setting, let the peace of Christ invade from the outside and rule your reaction. Hear this. He says, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts 
to which indeed you were called in one body and be thankful. Now, this is significant because what he's saying is that you can't just do whatever you want. He's not just saying you're a Christian, you're set free, do whatever you want. He says, no, 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 something has to rule you. And this is what I want to be ruling inside of you. It is the peace of Jesus. And to be ruled by something means it makes my decisions, not me. And when I sense that there is conflict and I have wronged someone or someone has wronged me and we're beefing and I'm frustrated and I'm like, man, I don't want to be okay with you right now. All of us have felt that way. That we let the peace of Christ invade. This is to place our minds on things above and say, man, there is a greater perspective. There is a bigger thing going on. And when Jesus comes in, he brings with him the peace that was lacking. And he says, I'll make peace where there was no peace. And when it happens, it restores unity. And so for some of you, you've got conflict. You've got one view of the situation. They've got another. You're fighting with someone in the church. You're fighting with a brother or sister in the Lord. And Jesus is saying, let my peace rule. And you try and you say, you said this. And they said, no, I didn't. You said this. And you say, no, I didn't. And you can't work it out. And at some point, you just got to say, he is the God of peace. Listen, I don't need to hold this against you. I forgive you. I'm letting it go. Will you forgive me? Let's pursue unity together. Because this stuff doesn't happen on accident. It has to happen on purpose. When it happens, it leads us to gratitude. Be thankful. It leads us to this place where we say, Jesus, you have solved for me the greater problem than what I realized. Jesus, you're bigger than this small frustration. Jesus, you're bigger than my pride. Jesus, you're bigger than my hurt feelings. Jesus, you're bigger than the offense, whether it be big or small. I can let it go. I can move on because of you. So let the peace of Christ rule in you. Thirdly, meditate on the word of God together. Let the word of God fill and fuel you daily. Let this be in your minds and what comes out of your mouths. Hear the word of God, Colossians 3.16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. He's saying, this is the message I want resonating in your mind. This is the thing I want taking root in your heart. This is the stuff I want you to focus on. And it's really important because we let other things play that message in our mind, don't we? Some of us, we have a script that we've carried with us from childhood. Somebody told you at one point that you weren't very smart, and now that's become the thing that you've carried with you every time. And somebody said, hey, do you want to join my book club? And you said, no, thanks. I'm just not that smart. You had an opportunity and it was a chance for a promotion at work. And you said, no, I probably shouldn't put it in. Somebody else is going to get it anyway. I'm just not that smart. Or somebody said, you're not a good leader. You're not good with people. Someone began to define you and you let that thing play like a feedback loop in your brain going over and over and over again. And every time you wake up and look at yourself in the mirror, you kind of recite the list. You're not very good looking. You're not very smart. You're not very good at this. You should go to the gym, man. You should really go to the gym. You know what? It's probably not going to do anything if you go to the gym. Just have that bowl of ice cream. You know, like, like you tell this thing in your mind and it begins to cripple you. And in this age, in this society, man, in, in, in this world of interconnectedness like we are more than we ever have been before... We're seeing the negative side effects of this stuff. We begin to judge and compare ourselves to all sorts of other people, and it's our worst to their best, to the things that they choose to share. And we're like, why isn't my life that way? 
why didn't my life work out like that? And you begin to tell this script over your head. And he's saying, I want you to change your script. I want you to change the things that have led you into depression. I want you to change the things that have led you into this crippling despair, into this place where you can't think straight anymore and you can't see anything positive anymore and you are out of hope. He says, I want to change the script. It was funny, when I was going to, um, when I was going to college my freshman year, I still remember I had a professor only for two classes, and he was a very interesting guy. Uh, I've never met anyone quite like him. He was about five foot two inches tall, and he walked with a little bit of a hunch in his back like this because he had uh, a muscular degenerative disease. And because of this, his, his, all of his joints tended to kind of bend inward like this. And so he walked like this, kind of bent over a little bit. His hands were constantly stuck like this. And I watched him as he would write on the board. And he would have to put the chalk between his fingers. And just like this, he would write up on the board. And the guy wasn't, he just wasn't that handsome of a guy. He looked kind of like a mole. Uh, in the face. He just, I'm, I'm not trying to pick on the dude. I'm just setting it up for contrast that this man, who wasn't necessarily the best looking guy, who had this musculature problem that could have left him frustrated and crippling despair, who could have quit the teaching profession, instead was one of the most charismatic, just beautiful men I've ever met in my life. Just the most kind hearted man. And I remember as he was talking to a bunch of freshmen, he began to speak to us about depression. And he began to say, man, there are things in this world that when you play the message over and over and over in your brain, it will destroy you. And we looked at this guy and we said, man, this guy has been through it. Like, can you imagine if your body stopped working the way that you wanted it to? And he's faced against this and we're not we're nodding north and south. And it's kind of this serious moment. And he's saying, you need to be careful of what you allow to take place in your mind. And we're like, yeah, you're right. And he says, here's what I want you to do. I want to give you something. And I want you to say it every morning as you wake up. And we're like prepared. This is a Christian college. I'm thinking to myself, he's got some prayer he wants us to pray or some Bible verse he wants us to do. And, and so he says, I want you to say this every day. I want you to get up out of the shower. I want you to look yourself in the mirror. I want you to look yourself in the eye. And I want you to say, hey, you sexy thing. Don't you ever die. And I was like, What? What? Where did this come from? We all started laughing. But man, let me tell you, let me tell you, 18 years later, I can't get that out of my head. I see myself in the mirror and I smile and I go, hey, you sexy thing. <laughs> Don't you ever die. And it's just it, the darkness is driven out. And it was funny because there would be times throughout the weeks of the class where a student would start smiling and then we would catch their eye and we'd smile together. And then they were just kind of the teacher's teaching and you just kind of say over across the aisle, hey, you sexy thing, don't you ever die. We'd all start laughing again. And the point was this, you got to be careful the message that you allow to go through your brain over and over and over again. And the message that, that God is trying to get us, he says, let the words of Christ dwell in you richly. Teach, admonish one another with wisdom, singing psalms and hymns, all of this stuff. It's meant to engulf your mind in continual pursuit of God. And this lines up exactly with the Old Testament perspective in the Jews. For those of you who are familiar with the Shema, 
In Deuteronomy chapter 6, to this day, a good God-fearing Jew will pray this every day and some several times a day. And the Shema comes from Deuteronomy 6, 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. This is essentially what they believe to be at the core of their spirituality, at the core of their identity in God. These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts and press them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. Let me translate that for you. When you sit down and when you go out, always. When you lie down and when you get up, always. When you're with your kids and also when you're not with your kids, always. He's saying, listen, never get tired of remembering the word of God. Tie them. On your hands, bind them on your foreheads, write them on your door frames of your houses and your gates. And he tells them why. Verse 10, when the Lord God brings you into the land, he swore to your fathers in Deuteronomy, they're waiting for the promised land. When the Lord God brings you there, the land he promised to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, a land with large flourishing cities you did not build, houses filled with all kinds of good things you did not provide, wells you did not dig. And vineyards and olive groves you did not plant. Then, when you eat and are satisfied, be careful that you do not forget the Lord who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Can I tell you to to every believer, we have a story, and this is what's going on in Colossians 3. He tells them, you once were dead. You were dead in your sin. You were caught up in the stuff. You couldn't get out. You couldn't save yourself. And Jesus came and he drew you out of it and he brought you into life. And when he did that, when he did that, he saved you from something. He brought you up out of something. And all of us have known what it is to call on God and say, God, will you forgive me? And all of us have known what it is to call on God and say, God, no one else can help me. Can you? And there was a time when we called out to God and he answered and he saved us. When we called out and he brought healing, when he We called out, and he brought us through the storm of life, and we called out, and he delivered us. And yet, there are times where we forget the goodness of God. There are times when the problems that we face, when the struggles, when the hardship, when the pain, when the offense comes, and we can't remember the goodness of God anymore. Instead, we get frustrated, and we begin to walk away from God and from the church We begin to walk away from this thing that we've built together and we say, you know what? I don't need this anymore. If this is the way it's going to be, if I'm going to get offended, if you're not going to treat me this way, if you're going to act like this and say those things, who needs you? I'll do it on my own. He's saying, man, don't do that. All the language here is not just read the Bible more. He says, do it together. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing. These are things that need multiple people. He's not saying get a mirror and teach yourself. He's saying, listen, what you've learned, pass unto others. Admonish is a kind of correcting one another. How? By bringing them the word of God. 
And then sing together. Sing the psalms. Let them be on your mouths. Know the songs together. Let it be something that unifies you, that you both care about the Word of God and that your whole lives revolve around it. Let it be this thing that draws you in and keeps you together. It's this sense that wherever you came from, whoever you were before, you have this new identity and we have known what it is to be unified by this. Whatever your culture, whatever your age, however much money you make or don't, if you were on the verge of poverty or in the top 1%, if you were in the place where you grew up in kind of this, this gang situation and every day you wondered, am I going to live through this day? Or you grew up in the nicest, safest neighborhood in the richest suburbs. No matter where you came from, whether you were born in America or somewhere else, whether you know Chicago is home or it's only just become home recently, the thing that binds us together is not our nationality, it's not our blood, it's not our same social situation or financial situation. The thing that binds us together is Jesus. It is the word of God that makes us one. And so when I speak the word of God and you speak the word of God, we get together and we say, yeah, that. Yeah, that's good. And this is the whole purpose of fellowship. It's that funny word that we use in church, right? When we talk about it like, hey, we need some good Christian fellowship. And people are like, what are you talking about? It's such a Christian word. It's such a Christian word. And we don't get it, right? So some people come in and we say, you need godly fellowship. And they're like, what is that? I've got enough friends, right? If you're just wondering, like, if Christian fellowship is just about having more friends, some of you may say, I've got enough friends. I've got people who care about me. Some of you say, no, 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 you need fellowship so you can have accountability so that you can kick those habits and make sure you don't cheat on your wife. And some of you are like, man, I don't need that to not cheat on my wife. I'm okay. Francis Chan actually spoke about this in, in biblical community. And he said, you know what? I don't need a small group. I don't need fellowship. I don't need Christian community in order to not cheat on my wife. I can do that by myself. I don't need Christian fellowship to make sure I read the Bible every day. I can do that on my own. I can live into this Americanized Christianity, this sense of I'm going to try and sin a little bit less and go to church a little bit more. And if that's the end extent of your Christianity, you don't need other people to do that. He says, but when I look at the Bible and I understand the urgency of the mission of God, I need other people for that. And other people, I need other people around me who are going to see me when I get caught up in the weeds and my life is kind of spinning circles and I get lost in despair and depression and all these things and my life becomes small and I'm living just to get a paycheck and pay the bills and get through another day and another day and that day turns into a month, into a year, into a decade. I need other Christians who will come alongside me and say, you're missing the mission of God. Come on. Don't stop following Jesus. Come on, we'll do it together. I need somebody who's going to come and, and get me. And in the days when I'm just like, man, I'm tired and I'm selfish and I don't want to do it. I don't want to live for the mission of God. When I look at this and I see the burden that the early church had for the souls of the lost. And we feel the weight of that. There's something in me that says, I can't do this alone. And so Paul's telling us, don't do it with other people. Come together, meditate on the word of Christ. Let it dwell in you richly. Let it be the thing that you love, the thing that binds you as one. The thing that you can agree on if you disagree on everything else. Let it be the thing that draws you together. And fourth and finally, 
do everything for Jesus. Everything. Somebody say everything. Do everything for Jesus. Let him into every area of your life. Colossians 3.17. The pericope is ended here, the thought segment. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. It means whatever you do, everything, everything. And some of us, we get, we get a little lost in this, a little wrapped up in this. We kind of look at our life and we know there are things that we need to prioritize. And so we make the pie chart and we say this is important. And I need a little bit of time, right? I need a little bit of time to make sure that I'm, I'm going to work and, and getting money to pay for my house and to pay for my car. And weirdly, my kids like to eat, that kind of stuff. And so I, I need to do that. And, you know, there's going to be some amount of time that I spend on entertainment. You guys are going to watch TV. You're going to read books. You're going to do things and figure out people to spend time with. You're going to want some segment of time where you're like, hey, my family's important and I need to prioritize this. And some of you, you're going to have a small segment that you're going to call your romance segment. And you're going to pursue that. And some of you guys, it's bigger than others. And some of you married couples that Needs to be a little bit bigger, but you're going to say, what are the things that matter? And you're going to have hobbies and things you do. And some of you, you're going to join book clubs and others of you are going to join motorcycle gangs. You do you. That's fine. You're going to have your hobbies. And you're going to say, at some point in time, I need to make sure that I have my God segment. I have this portion of my life and it's going to represent some period of time. How am I doing? Am I going to church? Did I go to small group? Did I read the Bible? Did I pray? How much did I pray? How did that work? Did I fill... My segment. Let me tell you, this isn't what God wants. He doesn't want to be the thing you check off on your list. He wants to be the priority of your soul. Instead of being this, this portion of your day, he wants to be the God who comes in with you in everything you do, that when you go to work, you say, I'm going to work and I'm bringing God with me. And I hope that it makes you a better worker and a stronger worker and a harder worker and a more ethical worker. I hope it makes you more dependable, more responsible, more respectful, I hope that other people look up to you. I hope that it makes you a good leader. I hope that it makes you someone who is thoughtful of the people that work for you and that you care for their needs and not just for your own. That you work with a certain quality that is, uh, that is amplified because you realize what you do, you're not doing for your boss who may or may not be a jerk, but you're doing it for God. That you would bring them into your entertainment. And some of us, it's going to change the amount of entertainment time we have. For some of us, it's going to change the quantity and the quality. We're going to say, you know what? What am I doing? What am I enjoying? How am I spending my life? It's going to change the way I do family, the way that I parent, the way that I am a husband or a wife, the way that I live as a person. It's going to change my identity. If God is in me and everything I'm doing is for him, then it means that my life has to change. And this is the language of Colossians chapter 3. It's something we should be revisiting regularly it's something we should be constantly coming back to and saying, God, like last week, are there things I need to put to death? And God, are there things that are of your character that I need to put on? Because it's possible that we could look at our life and say, I just don't see how my life lines up with this. And so today I want to invite you to respond to the Lord. And for some of you, right, this is going to be just an encouragement. Keep going. Don't give up. This is going to be that hunger and passion for Jesus that I'm just saying, throw another log on the fire. Keep the fire burning hot. That's great. For some of you, you have wandered away from God. That you're back today or that you're here again this week, but you're saying, my soul, it's far from the Lord. This is going to be that call that says God wants you to live a little bit bigger, a little bit deeper. That God wants the burden on his heart to be the burden of yours to care for people. 
to love the people of Oak Forest, to love your neighbors, your coworkers, your family, to care about the people that God has put in your sphere. This is his mission for your life, that you would live out Jesus there, that his character would be yours, that his heart would be your heartbeat. And for some of you, the idea of living for Jesus To have somebody else making your decisions, ruling in your life, it doesn't make any sense at all because you've never known Jesus like this. You've never asked him to be your Lord. But I want you to know that he loves you, that he's pursuing you, and that if you're here today, I don't think it's on accident. When we hear the word of God, any time that it's spoken, we're told in Isaiah that the word of God never goes out from him void but it always accomplishes the purpose to which he sends it. So I want you to know that God is at work in you today to create change in your life. I want to ask you again to respond. Will you stand with me as we pray? For some of you, this is going to be a very significant moment, a moment where you say, God, I need to come back to you. A moment where you say, God, will you forgive me of my sins? God, I want to be wholly yours. For some of you, it will be significant in another way. You'll need to say, God, I have people that I'm not forgiving, people I'm holding on to, and today I want to offer forgiveness. And you need to take that step. For some of you, this is a homecoming. It's a place of coming back to Jesus. And it's good that we're about to take communion here, that we're reminded of his sacrifice that brings us together and draws us into his family. We pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace and your goodness. We thank you for your son, Jesus who died on the cross for our sins. We thank you, God, that although you had power to do any number of things to protect yourself, you risked and you sacrificed for me. Your action was painful and it was hard. But there was something there of deepest love. And because of it, we're brought into unity. We're brought into family. And so, God, we thank you for this sacrifice and we ask, that you would begin to change our character, that you begin to shape us into your likeness, that you would change us so that we would look like you, that we would be able to forgive like you forgave, that we would be able to love the way you love. God, that we wouldn't be the ones constantly saying, what about me? But we'd be the ones advocating for others. That we would be the ones who have a burden for the lost, who care that there are people who do not know you, people who are living their life headed straight to hell, Let that burden us. Let it bother us. Jesus, put your heartbeat in our hearts. We ask, God, that you would change us from the self-focused people that we so naturally become into the kind of people that can lay our lives down like Jesus laid his life down for us. That we would be the ones who live for you. God, we pray that you would take away this short-sighted view of Christianity that's been abbreviated to a few minutes a week couple hours on a Sunday and you would change this to a life altering mission that we would be those who follow you Jesus we surrender we ask you to rule and reign in this place in Jesus name Amen. as a proclamation of what Christ has done I want to invite you to come and take communion as this next song plays to prepare your heart to do whatever you need to do to restore relationship with God. And when you're ready, if you're a follower of Jesus, I want to invite you to come to the altar and take communion there, remembering his sacrifice for you. Will you join us as we sing?